Any thoughts, questions, observations from this morning? The healing of the widow. Yes, Dawn. Oh, great. <laughs> and how he amazed Jesus with his faith. Um, this week, all of a sudden, we see Jesus walking into this situation. No request, no faith that we know of. And, uh, and, and he does this incredible miracle. Um, can we assume that there's something else behind the scenes, um, that this is a particularly pious people in this city of Nain? I don't, they never get mentioned again. If there is faith, if, if faith is generated from this, um, we, we don't know anything of it. I mean, this is the sole referent to Nain in the Bible. Um, in Luke's narrative, the most immediate effect is the renowned spreads, and that sets up the encounter with the, John the Baptist. If you go to, go to Luke, um, go to Luke 7, and that's how he links. Um, and that's where we get more of the whole Elijah theme, because John the Baptist messenger show up and Jesus talks about if you'll accept him, he is Elijah. And so yeah, the, chapters four to nine, Elijah is is dominantly in the background. But yeah, look at um, seven. Um, I mean John, sorry. There we go. Luke seven, eighteen. The disciples of John reported all these things to him. So the word spreads, verse 17, the report about this spread through all the whole Judea and all the surrounding country, and the disciples of John reported all these things to him, and John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord. Notice Luke's now just calling Jesus the Lord, pretty much standard now. Um, and so in, in Luke's narrative, that's, that's its place in the narrative. It sets up and it moves into action, John the Baptist sending his people. I, I really just think it's a beautiful picture of the heart of our Lord. I don't think there's a greater... He doesn't set up the teach. This isn't going to launch into a sermon. Um, we can hope and pray this woman came to faith in him. There's no record of that. He simply has compassion on a widow and grieving mother, and he gives her boy back to her. And I think that's just wonderful. And we can imagine what else might have taken Luke doesn't tell us. And so I think it's just wonderful that here, and that also starts getting the word out, which gets the John the Baptist ball rolling. That's, in Luke's narrative, that's what it does. So I don't know. There's no mention of any faith. There's no, it's not even Jesus seeing her faith. Jesus just sees her and he feels compassion and he gives her boy back to her. And I just think that's wonderful. Absolutely wonderful. Um, yeah. Any other? Yes, Linda. Oh, no, no, wait, wait for the mic. No, I get regularly, I guess I talk to some people who listen to this who regularly thank me for um, the mics. Well, I was just going to say that in 16 and 17, it kind of goes on. It says they were all filled with awe. So I'm assuming that means all the people who were part of the procession and anyone in yeah. town. I mean, if yeah. something like that happens, yeah. the word is going to spread quickly. Yeah. And then it says, um, you know, in 17, that it went out about Jesus throughout Judea and the surrounding country. So, so this continues to magnify the report that's been echoing since chapter 4. The word's been growing, the word's been growing. The word, and this, of course, pours more gas on that fire. The word is spreading and spreading. And ultimately, it spreads to John the Baptist in jail, 
who sends his messengers to Jesus, and that's going to be what Daniel has to deal with next. I nicely timed one of the trickier passages to coincide with my absence, by the way. Um, sorry, no. That was just a happy accident. But No, they, they praised God. But that could mean many things, obviously. Well, well certainly. I mean... <laughs> People praise God all the time when good things happen. Whether or not that sticks around, whether or not that actually um, turns into anything. We saw how in chapter 10, Jesus says to Capernaum, where he did all his miracles, and they right. praised God. Right. Do you think you'll be exalted up to heaven? No, you'll be cast down to hell. Right. So it's indecisive. It's, it's good. I mean, at least that much should happen. So good for them for doing that. The camera never returns to right. see what the final outcome is. So Jesus does a notable miracle. Everyone's praising God. Fear grips them. They're rejoicing. And then we never come back to them. You know? I wonder what ever happened to people at Nain. Don't know. Wanda. I was just wondering if... Um, well, I've never spoken a microphone before. Um, I was just wondering if... Can you use that example and the example of um, the bringing out of Lazarus as... When people say you weren't healed because you didn't have enough faith, are those examples you can say? Oh, those are great examples. That yeah. refutes that. Okay. Those are those are great examples. Well, yeah, the Bible has all sorts of things. Certainly, people are told because of your faith you're healed. No, no doubt. That is not the only paradigm. In in the case of the centurion, the last week's passage, it was the centurion's faith that brought the healing for the servant. So there you've got proxy faith, if you want to make that argument. You know, um, here, no faith mentioned whatsoever. Um, in other examples, like in chapter 5, because of the faith, he says your sins are forgiven. He only tells him to rise, not because of faith, because he wants to prove a point to the Pharisees who are grumbling. So there's all sorts of reasons given. for. So to say the only reason healings don't happen is you don't have enough faith does not fit the biblical record at all. There's all sorts of healings for all sorts of other reasons as well. So that seems like a cop-out to me, especially since how much faith is this dead young man exercising? How much faith is Lazarus exercising? How much faith was the centurion's servant exercising? None. So No, fair enough. That's an excellent point. Excellent point. Um, yeah, that, these, are, these are things I'd go to to say, mm, yeah, I don't know. I don't think so. Any other thoughts or questions on these? Yes, all the way in the back. You need to speak into the microphone. <clears throat> Am I the only one here that has not heard of the Sermon on the Plain? I've never heard of it. Is she or isn't she? I don't know. Oh, yay, yay. Raise your hands. Raise your hands. Okay, let me let me go back and explain that. There's some debate over whether or not Jesus' sermon on the, as I call it, the plain, and the sermon on the mount are the same. Obviously, the sermon on the mount is the one that everyone knows the name of. That's found in Matthew chapter five through seven. Okay, um, the reason I call this the sermon on the plain is if you go back to chapter six, verse seventeen. He came down with them and stood on a level place or a plain. Okay? It is entirely possible that Matthew and Luke record the same event. I don't tend to think so, but there are good guys who think so. There's certainly a tremendous amount of overlap in material. 
okay? There's a tremendous amount of overlap in material. Because we know Jesus was teaching here, there, and everywhere, though, because there's also dissonance. There's also differences. For instance, in Matthew's account, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Luke just says, blessed are those who are poor, blessed are those who hunger. And you can try to explain the differences, or you can say, Jesus taught variations of this sermon everywhere he went. Working right. Oh, um, so what is the scripture for that one about the Sermon on the Plain? Is that when you said this morning, Luke 6 something? Well, 6.17 sets up where, if you look at Luke 6.17, this is the, the, the um, introduction to the teaching. Jesus went down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of the people who had come to hear him. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and he said, so Jesus comes down from a mountain. He's not on a mountain. He's come down. Now, if you think they're the same, he's only come down part way, and he's still on the mountain. Although Luke doesn't say that. Luke just says he came down from the mountain onto a level place. And it's the level place is where I get the word plain from. What do you call a plain? The reason I call the sermon on the plain is simply to make it clear this is Luke's record of this sermon, whether or not it's the same thing or not. Here's what I want to avoid. Here's what I'm trying to avoid. If you think that they're the same, and, and you can conclude they're the same, that's fine. They may well be. What people then do is they start to fill in the blanks from each other. And so you don't teach Luke and you don't teach Matthew. You sort of teach this hybrid of Luke-Matthew. And the thought then is you're really recreating the sermon. I'm not even sure they are the same sermon. I want to teach Luke, and Luke is drawing attention to things that Matthew's not drawing attention to, and Luke is, is doing things, and I want to see what Luke's doing. So by referring to it as a sermon on the plane, I'm trying to make it clear this is Luke's sermon. Whether or not he's recounting the same thing as Matthew, I don't know. I don't think so, but it could be. Um, certainly, it's a similar type of sermon to the one Jesus gave in Matthew. I'm just trying to make it clear we're teaching Luke. We're not teaching Luke Matthew, uh, on the point. Does that make any sense? That's why I keep referring to it as a so sermon how, plan. So how many uh, chapters does that include? In 17 Matthew, through what? No, in Matthew, in, no, in Luke, it's just chap- It's not even all of chapter 6. It's 17 through something? No, no, no. It was 6, 17. 6, That's chapter it. 6, okay. verse 17, Okay. through chapter 6, the end of the chapter. So 6.17 to the end of the chapter is, which is another one of the big differences. In Matthew, it's over three chapters. In Luke, it's not even a whole chapter. Now, maybe, again, they're the same thing, but anyway. Um, my old pastor, John MacArthur, taught, thought they were the same. He may well be right. I just see enough differences, and since I know Jesus is teaching all over the place, I see no need to try to bend and twist to make them line up perfectly. This could be the version of it he taught in Capernaum, and that could be the version of it he taught in Nazareth. You know, And I would expect there to be tremendous overlap and similarity as he's going around teaching. So, Okay, I'm looking here, and Luke 17 no, no, over, overlaps no, the Beatitudes. No, no, so. no, Luke chapter 6, starting in verse 17. Not chapter 17. You're in 6? 617 until the end of the chapter overlaps the Beatitudes. So, Well, no, the Beatitudes are in verse 20 through 20, um, 
Right, 25. but you said till the end of the chapter. The sermon's the end of the chapter. Both Matthew and Luke begin their recounts of Jesus' sermon with the Beatitudes, with the blessed are, the blessed are, the blessed are. Again, they're not identical, but the form is similar. The form is very similar between what Matthew does and Luke. So some people seeing the similarity think, ah, these are two accounts of the same thing. Possible. And just to interject yeah. here for one second, it, the odds are that neither one of them is the complete sermon. Oh, sure. Because, I mean, you've got even the, the longer of the two, the Sermon on the Mount. It takes eight minutes to read? Yeah, I mean, and we know from other accounts that when Jesus preached, he preached long enough that people yeah. were getting hungry. That's so. Macar- no, that's MacArthur's answer, and he may, may well be right. MacArthur thinks that just as in a sermon the, the, the preacher will come back and hit a topic again, the differences where they're not exactly worded the same is, well, this must be 20 minutes later in the message when Jesus came back and hit that point again. Okay, maybe. It, that entirely could be the case. Y- either way, they're probably... It's most likely a yeah. like a highlight or a, a summary of what he yeah. preached, and it was likely yeah. sort of a, a recurring sermon right. since he was a right. since he was itinerant. Yeah, absolutely. So, would it help to read it in John MacArthur's study Bible? Maybe? I, I I generally am benefited most of the time I read MacArthur's notes, but I'd, I'd suggest first and foremost it would help to read it in the ESV or the Bible. Um, let's start there, and then we can move on to godly and faithful men's notes, but. Yeah, sure. Sure, absolutely. Um, oh, I've got a... Okay, any other questions? Because i got a confession to make in a second. You got one, Alyssa? No. Oh, she's, she's got a microphone. I am a proud and ashamed Greek teacher. Proud because one of my students corrected me on something I said this morning. Ashamed because someone corrected me on something I said this morning. <laughs> um, but... <clears throat> Where is it? Do I not have it? It's, anyway. Um, the uh, pronoun that I said was emphatic for Jesus saying, I, I, myself, is really, I say to you. Oh, 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 you, yeah, okay. You, you. I was going to ask you later. I didn't want to. <laughs> so the emphasis is on I say to you, not I, myself, say. And I, I was looking down. I actually had the. I actually had my Greek translation in the pulpit with me. And I just misread the stupid thing. And so, because I am not an authority of my own, when I say something wrong, I want to own up to it. So that was not correct. And I am very thankful for people who care enough about the word to, to lovingly call me on it, like Alex did. So he is a, that is a good Greek student. He's in my Greek class, and he called me on it. I mean, he just said, hey, let me see your translation. What's going on there? And I'm like, dude, you're totally right. I totally said that wrong. And then I want to go on the record and make that clear. So... Yes, indeed. Okay, other questions or thoughts? We've got 15 minutes here. 15 minutes. Who does? Okay, what? No, no, it's imperative. No, it's an imperative. Um, Arist active imperative. No, it's, aris, pat, it's passive. Be arisen, really, literally. Hold on. I'll tell you right now. Hold on. Let's be arisen. Hold on. The question is, when Jesus says, arise, what's the case parsing of it? I can do that real quick. Um, In, here we go, 7, 13, uh, 14, okay. 
Um, yeah, aorist passive imperative. There you go. Um, okay. Other questions or thoughts or anything? Broadening it out from anything in Luke in general, if, if you got nothing else from this morning, any other thoughts or any other burning issues. Or we can take the last 10 minutes and go back to 1 Corinthians 14 and deal with tongues. Well, we, looks like maybe we'll get there for 10 minutes, Alyssa. Yeah. We'll see what happens. Oh, Lee's got a question. I was reading, I reading, I can't remember where it was, but about every knee shall bow and every tongue confess. And is that actually literal tongues in your mouth are going to confess? Yeah. Okay. The so Greek, it's a different word. Yeah, no, no, no. It's the same word. The Greek and the English have the have nearly identical meanings. They can both refer to the organ of speech okay. or language. So your mother tongue or your tongue. And when the King James translated glossolalia as tongue, it was a perfectly fine English translation because that's the majority term people used for language. We don't really speak that much anymore, so now it just sounds eerie, and it's unhelpful. Um, yeah, yeah. Okay, we're going there. We're going to First Corinthians. Any other questions? We're leaving Luke. Okay, First Corinthians fourteen. We'll go there for 10 minutes. And because it's been a while since we've been here, I will try to summarize the points. 1 Corinthians 14 is the single most and really the only extended treatment discussion of the gift of languages in the Bible. We see it occur in the book of Acts but not much explanation given other than the first occurrence in Acts 2 where um, Peter attributes um, the men prophesying, the old men seeing dreams, the young men prophesying to the prophecy in Joel. Aside from that, it's reported it happens, and we know how people respond to it, but there isn't much commentary on it. So 1 Corinthians 14 is pretty much the place to go if you want to go, what on earth does this mean? And the first point I made that Lee links in nicely with is this. It really doesn't help it to call it the gift of tongues when we don't call any other use of language tongues. Call it the gift of languages. Okay, That's what the King James translators were doing when they called it tongues back in the day. It's just an everyday Greek word. It's not some specialized word. Only because I think it does not help to give it a sort of mysterious, spooky vibe because that's at least growing up with me what tongues, it sounds mysterious. It's just language. This means language, or it can mean the organ of speech in your mouth, your tongue, right? Um, and so when I try to talk about this, and i got friends of mine who um, believe they can speak in tongues, speak in prayer languages, love them to death. Um, these are things that, you know, I'm not on the same page as they are, but we can, we can love the Lord and get along and everything's cool. But one of the first things I try to do when I just have a discussion with them is, okay, can we, can we talk about the gift of languages, because um, what I'm trying to do here is not argue whether or not it exists or not, but to argue what it should look like if it's happening. And so here, here are some of the points I've made in, in summary. First, um, I believe chapter 14, verse 10, limits the discussion of languages to, as Paul says, there are doubtless many different languages in the world and none is without meaning. I would argue, based on that, that when Paul is discussing the spiritual gift of languages, it is a gift 
limited to known earthly languages, known languages of the earth that have meaning. The reason I make that point is this. Um, Almost exclusively in my experience, almost exclusively in my experience, the people who claim to speak in other languages claim to do it with languages that are not human and therefore cannot be verified. In my experience, near-exclusive appeal to angelic languages. And that, the precedent for that, comes a chapter before in 1 Corinthians 13. Um, And what he says, if you go back to 13, if I speak in the tongues or the languages of men and angels but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or clanging cymbal. And so it is argued, hey, angelic languages are also a possibility, and that's what I speak. Again, I find it very, very, very... um, convenient that in just about every instance that my friends, and I have dear friends, dear friends who, who hold to some of this stuff, but in just about every single instance, um, miraculously, the miraculous powers and abilities always seem to come down on the impossible to verify side. In other words, it's not as though like 50% of people claim to speak in language are like, no, no, I speak Creotian. But like literally, like to a man, every single person I know who claims to have the gift of languages also claims to have unverifiable languages. Anyone know anybody who claims to have the gift of languages who thinks they speak French or German or Dutch? I don't like how many never like that. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on. I'm not no no, I would not I would not I would not for a moment lump Benny Hinn in with some of my believing, faithful, loving no, friends. My, my point is that it's, it's not verified. Right. It's easy to argue right. something right. is like spiritually happening. No. Now, now let, me, let me say, but let me, but let me give you the reason why, and then I'll get to your question, why I think the, the argument, because look, that's not a great argument. Me just simply saying, hey, that's rather convenient, is not a powerful argument. The reason why I don't think angelic languages are an option is twofold. One, the near context is 14.10. When Paul is actually speaking about the gift of languages is when he limits it. The other reason is in 13, he's using hyperbole. You guys know what hyperbole means? It's when you exaggerate for effect. And so look what it's left alongside of. If I speak in the languages of men and angels but have not love, I am a gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith. Now, is anybody coming along claiming that? Because Paul put that on the table. I understand all mysteries. I have all faith, all prophetic powers. I'm pretty sure this is hyperbole, which means I think it's illegitimate to trump 1410. It's a clear statement where Paul's framing the discussion on languages with 13.1 to give you a back door so that you can't be verified. Anyway, that's just what I think. Moving on. Um, that's covering what we covered before. Um, the next point I made is this. Paul actually at one point in this looks at the possibility of praying in an unknown language. And here's his conclusion. Um, look at verse 14. If I pray in a tongue or in an unknown language, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will also pray with my mind. What I think Paul said right there, get this, it is better to pray and know what you're praying than to pray and not know what you're praying. 
It is better to pray with your mind engaged than it is for your mind to be unfruitful. Now, there's two possible readings of this. You could either argue Paul's half the time he prays in tongues and half the time he prays in Greek or Hebrew. I don't think that's what he's saying. I think what he's saying is, look, you certainly could pray in a known language. And he says, your mind will be unfruitful, karpos, barren. What, what should I do about this then? I'd like to pray with my spirit and my mind. And if you say, no, no, you pray in your spirit when you pray by the Holy Spirit in languages, my question then is, did Jesus then never pray in the spirit? So I'm pretty sure the Gospels say he did, and yet there's no record of him praying in unknown languages. I think you can pray in the Spirit in English, if that's your mother tongue. Okay, moving on. But further, further press the point. I'm just trying to re- 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 um, reiterate my argument up to this point. If, and the reason why I say that is I, I fail to see And again, this is not a powerful argument because it's simply me not understanding something. But I fail to see what the purpose of the gift of languages is if I don't know what I'm saying. Because God, the words certainly aren't there for God's sake. The words certainly aren't there. We talked about this. You ever pray and you say something heretical by mistake in prayer? You know, you, you say something wrong. Now, God knows your heart, right? And we don't know how to pray as we ought to, Paul says. And, and, so I don't think God is fundamentally listening to the words. I'm pretty sure the Bible says God reveals and looks at the heart. Okay? So my question then is, if God's not really concerned with the words I'm saying, and I don't know what the words I'm saying, what is the purpose of this gift? What, what is accomplished? What benefit is given by me speaking in a language I don't understand? To pray to God. I don't, well, rather, my, and my goal here, Lee, is simply to size this up. Because Paul certainly looks, in, in, verse, in verse 14, Paul certainly says it could happen. You could pray in an unknown language. You could pray to God. That could happen, certainly. He just says your mind's barren, and he'd rather pray with his mind. Moving on, because here's where I want to get to today. Verse 20. Um, Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. In the law it is written, by people of strange tongues and by lips of foreigners, I will speak to this people, but even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Now look, here you get the only in the chapter purpose statement for the gift of languages. Thus, tongues are a sign or are for a sign, not for believers, but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign, not for unbelievers, but for believers. This is my final point I want to make, which is this. I also have never yet heard, and this is a question I'll frequently ask people who claim to have the gift of languages. Okay. Paul certainly considers it possible that a person with this gift could pray to God. He, I think he thinks it'd be better to pray in a language you understand, but certainly it's not sinful to do it. You, it can be done. But he says what they're for is a sign for unbelievers. So my question to my friends who believe they have the gift of languages is, could you give me some account, some description of how your gift of languages has functioned as a sign for unbelievers? And maybe someone's got some amazing testimonies out there. I, I have yet to hear it. It's almost all, no, it's for me in my prayer closet. It's for me in my church service. And Paul goes on to say, 
Look at uh, verse 23. If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and an outsider and unbeliever enters, will they not say you're out of your minds? Like that's not healthy. That's not good. So the, the way the logic works, go back to Isaiah 28. He's, he's quoting Isaiah 28 when he says, um, by foreign people and people of an unknown tongue. And in Isaiah, and we'll do this really fast, and then hopefully we'll close the discussion on, on tongues. Where we, I can take, I'll open up to questions next week, and I'll be done with tongues. Um, here's, here's the context. God has sent Israel prophets, and the people, instead of listening to the prophets, mocked them and got drunk. And God says, oh, okay, okay, okay. Here's what I'm going to do about that. Um, so we start in verse chapter 28 um, with uh, verse 7. These also reel with wine and stagger with strong drink. The priest and the prophet reel with strong drink. They are swallowed by wine. They stagger with strong drink. They reel in vision. They stumble in giving judgment, for all tables are full of filthy vomit with no space to left. To whom will he teach knowledge, and to whom will he explain the message? Those who are weaned from milk, those who are taken from the breast. For it is precept upon precept upon precept, line upon line upon line, a little here and a little there. In the Hebrew, this is these people are drunk, and God sent a prophet to them, and their response and their drunkenness is blah, 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 blah. That's basically what they're saying. And so the prophet comes to them to warn them, and, and there's, the tables are full of vomit, everyone's drunk. They, these are priests of God. And they just sort of, you know, a little here, a little there, precept upon precept. So God's response to that, for by people of strange lips and with a foreign tongue, the Lord will speak to this people to whom he said, this is rest, give rest to the weary, and this is repose, yet they would not hear. And the word of the Lord will be to them, precept upon precept upon precept, line upon line upon line, a little here and a little there. Which is to say, I'm going to send you to Babylon where everyone walking around you is going to be going blah, 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 blah. That's, that's the joke. That's the rebuke. Oh, I send my prophet to you, and you say blah, 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 blah. Tell you what, you'll know that I judged you when you're in a foreign land and everyone walking around you is going blah, 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 blah. You know, that's where the word barbarian comes from. The sophisticated Greeks thought that the Germanic tribes and hordes were so stupid and so uncivilized that all they did is walk around going bar, 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 thus they are barbarians. That is absolutely the etymology of barbarian. And so it's the same thing going on here. And so Paul's argument saying tongues are a sign, is they're a sign of judgment. They're a sign of judgment. And so in Acts 2, and we see this played out in Acts, what happens? Israel has killed their Messiah. Israel's killed their Messiah. And as you read the book of Acts, where does the gospel go? To the Jews or out to the Gentiles? Stage one, Jesus says, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and all the world. Stage one, in the middle of downtown Jerusalem, tongues, people stop. And tongues were not given to preach the gospel. People mistake this all the time. Tongues were the flashing neon sign to get the attention of the unbelieving Jews so that one man in one language, Peter, in Greek or possibly Aramaic, preached one message that 3,000 people were saved by. The gospel went out through Peter in one language. 
The gift of languages was the flashing neon sign to grab the, the attention. Okay, so then the gospel moves out to the half-Jews, the Ethiopian eunuch, who is, who is a black Jew. We know that those people exist, and from the Queen of Sheba and, and Solomon, and then the Samaritans who are half-Jews. And what's the next time the gift of languages shows up in the book of Acts? Right there. Hmm. When's the next time it shows up? When the gospel goes to a full-on Gentile, Cornelius. You see in the pattern, the trajectory, Israel's being passed over, the gospel is going to the nations, God is judging them, and this sign for unbelieving Jews that they are being judged is being delivered. And it's exactly how it plays out in the book of Acts. Okay, so my question then, and we'll close, to my, my friends, and I do have dear friends who, who believe that God has given them prayer languages, is, okay, I would love to hear how you or some of your friends, your gift of languages has functioned in any similar way as a sign for unbelievers. I am awaiting an answer. and Maybe there's a great one out there. I just haven't heard it. Anyway, that, that's what I think we should expect to see in the gift of languages. No earthly languages and that where it is, is it is possible to pray in them. Their primary function would be as a sign for unbelievers as Paul says it would be. I'll take questions on this next week, and then we'll move on. Thank you very much. Have a blessed day.